can you hear me? I can. Oh, that's fucking awesome. Can you hear me is the question. This is Sean Six from the Liquid Conversations, and I have my esteemed co-host, co-founder, one of my close friends, Aaron Nordstrom, uh, here on the phone. How you doing, man? What if I was to say that you're my co-host and one of my close friends? Oh, How you like them oh, apples. Oh, you flipped the switch. I did. You always oh. come up with some new uh, adjective for me. Today I was esteemed. Este- your esteemed colleague. Well, I mean, you know, I try to mix it up a little bit because I think um, me being on the radio side, we we do have a tendency to kind of go with the same introduction all the time. I call everybody dude. You know, you kind of get to that point where it's kind of like it's repetitive or or muscle memory kind of thing. Like you just say your name a certain way and you start things a certain way and, you know— People kind of expect it, I guess. I don't know. You... Let me ask you this, because we got the Nam the Nam show coming up. Yep. Do you find that that happens there more often than than normal because you're in this environment where it's like the hey dude, hey bro, hey man kind yeah. of thing happens so like rapid fire there. It is. It. Um. I refer to it sometimes as like you. You don't even really need to be conscious. I think at at sometimes at Nam or at the associated events, it literally things just come out of your mouth and you're like, okay, cool. You know, uh, it's it's like uh, it. It really is kind of like uh, it's pre-programmed responses almost. Uh, I was talking to somebody the other day, and the cool thing about because of my age, I kind of get a kick out of this with Facebook, with the pages that you know that you have and stuff like that. You can schedule posts, so you can schedule them out a year in advance. And they'll, sure. post, they'll post automatically for you, you know, the wonders of technology. So I almost kind of feel like going to some of these events, especially like NAM, because there's so <laughs> many, so many, you know, uh, industry people there, band people there. Uh, yes, we have the, the typical, like, you know, piranha groupies that are circling, the, you know, all that stuff. Chew chomp, chew chomp. You got it. You have that kind of pre-programmed kind of response. Oh, hey, nice to see you again, blah, blah, blah. My name is so-and-so. Here's my card, blah, blah, blah. And you're looking for, like, you know, the next person you can talk to or the bar. It's like having a uh, having a forwarding message on your phone. But the, the thing that's weird about it, though, is that you would think it should be the opposite, right? You're there to network with people and talk to people face-to-face and all these people that you never get to actually physically be in contact with because of distance, you know? Of course. And, you know, but I think I think now, I don't know, maybe I'm just speaking from my perspective, but now because of the, the digital interface that we have, you know, you get into that place and you kind of do have just like the automatic reply of, uh, hey, what's up? How's it going? The same thing happens in interviews as, as a guy in a band. You know, it's just, you get the same questions typically over and over again. You are a vast exception to that. That's why I love working with you on this, this particular you. platform. But, but the reality is that you end up asking or answering the same things you know, repeated times because people want the same information. Are you going to tour? What's the album about? Et cetera, et cetera. It's hard not to fall into it. I refer to it as the Wikipedia rundown. It's kind of like the bullet points. Like when somebody pulls up a PR primer kind of thing, it's like the one sheet. They're like, okay, I need to talk about this. I need to talk about this. I need to talk about this. And I need to talk about that. And then we can end the interview. For me, I want to cram all those, like those bullet points to the, like the last five minutes of the interview. (laughs) 
<laughs> right? It's like everything else, I really don't want to talk about that because I think a lot of people want to hear, people want to, I mean, and I say this with the utmost respect for fans, is that they want to live vicariously through the artists themselves. Um, so they want to hear real things about what, say, Aaron does every single day when he's, you know, practicing a new song for the upcoming Gemini Syndrome album. People want to understand what's going on. You know, what Aaron is doing at home with the dogs while he's waiting for everything to get ready for the new tour or something like that. They want to hear sure. real, real life people stuff. So when they hear these kind of kind of canned responses, canned questions thing, it it's boring for the listeners as much as it is for the artists, like you said. I think we're all kind of guilty to a point, right? As as the interviewer, as the interviewee, you know, I think as an interviewer, maybe people go in and they get uh, a little bit of stage fright in a sense, or the kind of getting put on the spot feeling right. that, that people can get sometimes so that they have those, you know, those notes to go back to, which is cool. And I get that. That's understandable. The same kind of way that the interviewee, you know, if you're going to ask me the same questions, I, I'm going to try to find the most eloquent way to say it because I'm going to say it a bunch of times, right? So eventually right. I'm going to try to have like a, a streamlined, well-thought-out, well-worded response to your, how is this tour going? But you're right. Like beyond that, you can find all that information out on the same sheet that the guy who's doing the interview has. That press sheet, you can find that, you know, the album's going to release on this date and they're going to be on tour with so-and-so, you know. But I, I think that that, that details of... Uh, of the in-between is really what, what people are after. I think you're right about that. For you on the other side of the stick, do you ever kind of get to the point where you're like, can we just not talk about the band at all? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sometimes, yeah. <laughs> can we just talk about, like, the movie that we just saw or yeah. what's going on over here or, you know, let's look at that, you know, really strange person that's passed out, com completely sunburned outside because it, you know. Right, right, right. I, I, I mean, definitely at times, you know, you get kind of, you don't want to uh, talk about it anymore. <laughs> I was watching something. I want to say it was with Bill Burr. And okay. he, I think it was him talking about a plane flight he took. I might be I might be uh, saying it to the wrong guy, but whoever it was sat next to um, what's that other dude's name? The uh, oh, he's in The Departed. He's in uh, ah, I forget his name. Whatever. Anyway, he sits down next to this guy, and they get to talking. And he's like a real big actor, you know, Hollywood A-lister. And uh, he found that as long as he didn't ask him about himself in the sense of like his business or his work, they talked the whole flight. But as soon as they started bringing up anything about his career, as he started bringing up anything about his career, he kind of clamped up a little bit. And I, I, I re it resonated with me or whatever. So like I'd rather tell there's so much more that goes on in a person's being besides their career, I guess. Do you? I don't know. Do you almost? There's a, there's a yin yang to that too, because it's the art that you create. So it's something that's really important to you as well, but it's just not the only thing. Right, right. You want to feel super passionate about it where you can actually talk about it in, you know, some sort of fluency. But then again, you don't want to seem overly boastful about it. Right, right. And, and that's hard for people because, you know, in the entertainment industry, which, you know, you and I both are in, we're on opposite ends of the stick, so to speak. But the thing of it is, is entertaining. I mean, getting it out there, sharing it with everybody. Oh, hey, check out my stuff. And oh, here's, you know, right. like I, you know, I, I feel almost kind of like I'm wearing a handcuff with a business card because when 
you meet other people in the industry, especially like you mentioned going to NAM. When you're out there, I mean, me for being an East Coast guy going to California and stuff like that, I mean, for, you know, for us, you know, this is wintertime. Uh, you know, it's cold. It's, you know, dark and gray here. We go to Anaheim, California, and it's a little bit of a <laughs> reprieve <laughs> to the most part. It's like you got a little bit of Southern California sun kind of maybe, if we're lucky. And, you know, it's kind of like a little bit of a vacation. So you're kind of a psych just to be there because of that. And But you still feel like you have to hand out these little two-by-three pieces of paper to say, well, this is my credentials. This is who I am. Am. This is what I do. This is what justifies me being here. I almost just want to have the conversation when they say, well, you know, who who are you and what do you do? I just want to say no one. I just snuck in. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, just to freak I'm him out a little jumper. bit. <laughs> I'm a fence jumper. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, you're there because you're a fan in general. You can carry on a decent conversation because what is that little piece of paper, that little card have to do to justify your reason for being there? You know, a lot of the artists, a lot of the people that are there that are notable, a lot of them get up on stage and say, you need to come to the show to support the art. Well, if I'm there to support the art, then why does it matter who I work for. And that freaks people out. So it's like, I almost feel like I'm handcuffed sometimes to actually hand out a business card to say, you know, this is what I do. This is, you know, this is who I work for, blah, 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 all that stuff. You know, I'm I'm proud of who I work for. Why do I have to hand out some sort of justification to be there? Yeah, I never thought about it like that. That's really interesting though. Because it does be like the NAM badge is like the coveted badge, right? Yeah. And it's like, you know, I, I saw people posting on uh, on Facebook just, you know, today or yesterday, you know, still looking, I need a NAM badge. And uh, they're like these coveted things that you, to get, to get into the, the cool kids party or whatever, the prestigious NAM. Yeah. Which I guess it kind of is, you know. And you, you brought up something else, too, that there's this, there's a group of people who get to go to that show in particular who are not industry people, right? They're not entertainers. They're not musicians. They're not vendors. They're not uh, media people. And they get to, they get their passes too. I want to go about that. I don't know how that works. I mean, it is certainly kind of like a I hate to say celebrity show off, but like a, <laughs> a who's a who's who of, of people doing shit and doing stuff in the in the thing. You know, it's kind of interesting because if you think about it, it's almost kind of like you're you know seeing the the guy standing on the corner going, "Hey man, you got any crack? Yeah. Hey 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 hey, hey come on, come on over here. I, I need I need a NAM badge. Yeah. Come on, hook oh. me up with a NAM badge, dude. Come on, come on. Yeah 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 yeah. I'll meet you. I'll meet you behind the church's chicken at twelve thirty. It's like instead of you're like standing outside on the methadone mile, you're standing on what is it, like Catella, I think it is. Yeah. And you see people yeah. out there going, holding up, you know, signs instead of saying, "We'll work for food." We'll give a hand job for a NAM badge. Hand job for NAM. Hanny for NAM. I mean, you know, it it is kind of interesting like that because people kind of get very freaked out about this industry. You mean, you see it. uh, You get up on stage. You see fans that, on one hand, are, you know, your livelihood. Uh, These people pay to come to see shows. They pay money to buy merch. They buy albums. And then every once in a while, you get the odd kind of outlier that is a little too excited about (laughs) stuff like that. And you get to see both ends of the spectrum, really. You get to see the black and white of things because in that type of industry, as much as you want the recognition, once you get it, then you're scared to hell of it. It comes with its own own principles of of accountability, I guess. 
Yeah, that's kind of an interesting point when you think about uh, you have somebody like uh, Ricky uh, taking shots at the industry during the Golden Globes and people are fake offended and shit like that. It's like he was 100% right, but he's part of the industry. So that is a, that's an interesting point, right? So I was wondering, there's, he, this guy's done this five years in a row now and he's always phenomenal. Right. And like he's got to get approved. Of course. Right. And they know what he's going to say. So there's got to be some kind of like either you got to think it's either like uh, two opposing forces, right? Or they're all playing the same side because they know he's going to go up there and they know what he's going to say. I'm getting super conspiracy theory about Hollywood right now, right? No, I think like it's the lights uh... just turned down. But somebody's <laughs> got to know that he's going to get up there and he's going to talk this mad trash about everything that is going on in Hollywood. And exactly. saying seemingly what the, you know, the vast majority of the populace kind of think about the, the smugness of Hollywood. I just thought about that South Park episode, George Clooney's acceptance speech. But if for, for that to be allowed, like then, then somebody in that seat of power has to know what's coming. You know what I mean? Of course. Nothing nothing happens without without uh, without approval. Of course. So There's so a how does that dichotomy work? How does that balance work with that part of Hollywood? There's a producer in the control room going, you know, I'm just waiting for him to drop the F-bomb so I can put my finger on the dump button. Right. It's, it's like he's not really concerned or she's not really concerned about any particular thing that he's going to say other than one of the words he can't say on broadcast television. Uh, right, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's an assumed risk, maybe. <laughs> yeah. And, he, and, they, and they paid him very well to do that. I'm sure they did. You know, everybody, like I'm seeing on social media, everybody's talking about the whole idea. And this is very pertinent to music in general, like especially the active hard rock vein of music right now. Because if you look back 25, 30 years ago, or if even if you want to go further back and go, you know, 40 years ago uh, or 50 years ago, you could say that rock stars took a lot more chances, said a lot more dangerous things, did really crazy stuff. I mean, it was the, look at the 80s, the, you know, the decade of decadence, uh, you you know, you had excess of every possible sort you could possibly imagine. It was sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and now it's lattes and yoga. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, the industry's changed dramatically, and is it because the, the, the record industry doesn't and throw money at everybody like it's you know you're at a strip club and somebody's just handing out one dollar bills you know make it rain kind of stuff or is it that people are fake offended looking for a reason to sue somebody uh you know what's the deal so they had to have known that ricky was gonna come out and take shots i think it's interesting that he did it within the opening monologue like he he set he set the bar oh, high right from the get go and said you know, it's like you thought you guys were just gonna have a relaxing evening for the next two hours yeah, this, some this stuff's gonna drink, be un- <laughs> some, some steak tartare this is gonna be uh, uncomfortable for a while so yeah I mean yeah we're talking about you and your friends. <laughs> <laughs> and so great that he said that Epstein didn't oh, kill himself. Man. I know he's your friend. I don't care. Oh, so good. Brilliant. So let's look at it this way. Your Gemini syndrome's in the segment of active hard rock. Is there a lot of pressure for you as a singer, as a songwriter, as a, a lyricist? Is it is there pressure for the band to say, okay, we have to navigate these waters of this industry right now? We can't go too far this way, or do we just say to hell with it, and then we throw all caution to the wind and see how far we can churn the the whole stew up? Mm, that's certainly an interesting 
question. I don't feel like we're. I don't feel like we're restricted from going in any particular place to kind of address half of that question. Like I don't feel like there's waters that we're not allowed to navigate in. Okay. Um, let's say when it comes to content, you know, I don't feel like nobody's ever told me not to talk about something or you know ask me to change my lyrical content. Uh, musically, that might be like musically. I think I've been I've been pondering this lately. Like, what am I trying to accomplish here? Am I trying to be a, a, a rock star here, or am I trying to be a successful musician, or am I trying to be an artist, or is it some combination of all of those things? And at the end of the day, I think the answer is that I want to be, I mean, I'm a musician, right? That's like, I study the science and the art of music. And I want to, I would hope that people want to listen to the songs that I write. Okay. So in that, in that framework, there's a game to be played, right? I want people to hear my music and I want to write good music. Now I happen to listen to and enjoy writing hard rock and metal and I mean, also like electronic and everything else that I do or whatever. But right. at the end of the day, I, I, I write the kind of stuff that I'm into for the most part. And I try to just write good songs. But there's also, you know, there's the reality that everybody knows that a song can't really be longer than four minutes tops or it's not <laughs> going to get radio play. Right. Right. That's just a rule that I didn't write it, but it just kind of exists. So if you want right. to be on the radio... You gotta, you've got to fit into that particular box. If you want to get on radio, you can't really scream. That's just a fact. It's a rule from, from who knows where. That there are people who sit in, in positions of power at you know, the gatekeepers, so to say, of radio, that if you have a scream that's atonal, it's probably not going to get on 70% of the channels across the country. Fair. So am I playing a game? Yeah, to an extent, because I have to know that if I'm going to get a song out there that's going to reach more people, if I scream in it, it's not going to get the audience. So I have to take that into consideration. Now, does that mean that I'm not going to scream? I mean, no, because I still do, because I think it's got a place in music that I write. But maybe if you're writing a song that you're gearing towards radio, you put that in your, in your rule book for, for a temporary time. Right. It's super interesting when you think about it that way, because, I mean, artists in general have always kind of had to skate that fine line. Uh, yep. You know, when you think about Renaissance art history, these artists are painting these murals for the church and the church is paying them. So supposedly they have to have the stuff that's supposed to be, you know, representative of the church and it's supposed to be mundane to a certain extent, but they would kind of like slip these little subliminal things in. Sure. Okay. So, I mean, music now and music in general, uh, no matter what decade or what period of time that you're looking at, is always kind of done the same thing. If you want some sort of commercial success for certain things, you have to make it somewhat just vanilla enough so the common everyday person, the widest swath of society, can actually understand it. Be fine. Oh, and, and, you know, the, uh, the root of all the words that you just used, communication... <laughs> Commerce, uh, common, you know, that calm part yeah. has to has to be in there. It yeah. has to be communicable. It has to be commercial enough. Yeah. Right? And it has to be commissioned by yeah. somebody. Somebody, somebody has to pay for it. Yeah. Somebody's got to pay for it. In that case, it was the church. Right? They had more money. Apparently, they had more money than the record labels do. Ayo. Well, that you never know. That might still be the case. But that's a that whole completely different conversation. That's, that's a whole a different, different podcast. That's a different podcast different right podcast. there. Yeah. But, I mean, it is it is kind of interesting. And that's one of the things that I've always been very curious about because I'm on the other side of it. 
from what you do. You know, I'm on the radio side. I'm, I'm on, you know, the media side of things. So for us, we're supposed to be a bridge between the artist and the fan. But it's always kind of fascinated me about what it's like to be on the creative side. Is it really that difficult to potentially compromise on what you think your artistic principles are to make a paycheck? <laughs> And that's tough for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a bitter bite right mm-hmm. there. I can tell you this. On every record we've done so far, just in this band in my lifetime, there's at least one song that's been like, I don't know, seven, eight minutes. Right. And there's no question. It, it's just the mindset of the industry. And I'm not saying this to badmouth or, or, or talk negatively in any capacity about this. It just kind of is the way it is. Correct. But we come in with a seven-minute song, and it always gets cut to five and a half. (laughs) And the only reason it bothers me is because I know that that's not going to be the radio song. Right. Because it's already eight minutes long. So why do we have to cut it to five and a half? Because we're almost going to make it to radio then. But it's still not going to be a radio song. So, like, why are we cutting it? Why not just let it be a nine-minute epoch? You know what I mean? But that's just me. So in that regard, you know, I've been steered in certain directions. But I think, again, it's just the... The conditioning of the industry to know that we're always trying to look for that, always trying to look for that banger, man. Always trying to look for that home run song. And uh, certainly, Bohemian Rhapsody is not going to be it. <laughs> so, I mean, in, in all essence, and I, and I love, I love this whole topic about the the length of the song stuff. Because when I first started in radio here in Boston, uh, the station that I started at was WBCN, and the first song that I played was "White Wedding" by Billy Idol. And the, and the second song, and I, I caught more hell for that just because, like, oh, dude, why is he playing that? He shouldn't be on the air, blah, blah, blah. He shouldn't play Billy. I'm like, dude, you have no idea how great that song is. You you won't even get it. And then the second song I played was Three Days by Jane's Addiction, which is like the full the full song is like 13 minutes long. Oh, amazing. And, and people lost their mind. They're like, what's going on? Like, you missed an entire commercial break right there just for that song. I'm like, no, that's right. the song that most jocks go to the bathroom for. Sure. <laughs> you know, that type of length of mentality, like, one of the things that I do here in Boston area is I, I, I teach podcasting. And I try to tell these students that people seem to tune out on podcasts around the 12-minute mark. And I'm like, oh, maybe it's because... That's a bunch of songs, the amount of time in between commercial breaks for radio. Because the listenership is actually so pre-programmed because of the way that the clock is set up for radio that that's when they expect somebody to come in with an ad. So. When you and I started doing this, we never set a time on any of this stuff. If it lasted five minutes, great. If it lasted two hours, awesome. No one cared. So, I mean, then you hear people like Joe Rogan that are doing stuff where his podcasts are like four hours long. Yeah, three and a half, three, four hours a day. Yeah. You and I were talking about this the other day. That just baffles me. I mean, I get how he can do it. I mean, I get how the guy can talk for three hours with a good conversationalist. Like, that makes sense to me. But to have people tuning in on a regular basis, that's, I mean, that's hats off, man. It's tough if you have a job and you want to listen to a podcast because if you're working a, we'll say, a stereotypical, you know, Monday through Friday, nine to five kind of thing, you can't sit there and listen to four, four hours worth of podcast and have it be reasonable. If you go home and listen to it, well, then you're most likely living alone and you don't have a relationship because, you know, who's going to put up, who's going to put up with you sitting at home listening to that for four hours and saying, hey, 
home alone because you're a loser. Yeah, I mean, even your cat, even your cat at that point is looking at you like, like you're a loser. Up, man. <laughs> yeah, it's like, dude, hey, look, I want some nine lives, man. What's going on? Come on over here. Right. But I mean, you know, that is tough when you think about it because we are pre-programmed through media, even watching television. You go through about 15 to 20 minutes worth of television and then you have a commercial break. You have three commercial breaks per hour. Right. So for podcast, but it does the same thing for you as an artist making a song. If you make something that's over four minutes, you feel like you potentially have fucked up or wasted your time recording. Well, I mean, in some, in some regard, you just have to know that's not going to radio. Yeah. And as there's plenty of bands out there that are proving that you don't necessarily need a, a radio song to be hugely successful. True. Um, it's not necessary. It definitely helps, but uh, there's other ways around it. The thing I think this all kind of goes back to is, is you know, our attention span, right? And you look at somebody like Rogan doing a three three hour podcast, and like so he had this guy Graham Hancock on, and Graham is an author. He writes about a lot of uh, like prehistory and ancient uh, civilizations that were more advanced than we give them credit for. Right. Super interesting dude. Um, but he was on his podcast. Now, what do you think they covered in three and a half hours? Just a, a ton of information, right? Right. But in order to take an excerpt out of that, you know, you're only going to get your, your 30 second, your one minute, your two minute cut. The same with any media. You know, you cut anything out of anything that we've said in any of our podcasts, you're going to get a little snippet of it, right? Of course. And to, to say anything that's worth saying, you need a little more time than that. And I, I think. Well, I mean, that that's a publicist's worst nightmare right there. Like, oh my God, like four hours? How the hell are we going to get like a, you know, two, right. like a five second clip out of that? You're making a producer's job extremely diffi- extremely difficult at that point. Right. I, and I mean, I think obviously for you and I starting this podcast, you know, we wanted to have these very raw, very open conversations with people, not necessarily about the music. Who cares if you're in a band? Who cares if you're a singer? Who cares if you're a guitar player? Who cares if you're a drummer or whatever? We just want to have real conversations like we're sitting around a kitchen table playing cribbage or something like that and having a, you know, a rando conversation because we met Who plays on cribbage, Sean. I, I'm old, dude. I'm sorry. It, it is what it, it is. What it is. We're around the table sipping our honeysuckle tea and playing cribbage. <laughs> I've, oh I, well, apparently I'm a boomer, and I didn't know it because I thought my parents were. I thought I, I thought my parents were boomers, but apparently people in their 40s to 50s are boomers now. I don't. Yeah, see, I thought I was with you too. I don't know that the lines are all blurred, man. I think they're rewriting them anyway. So I don't know. No one knows history anymore, dude. We, we, nope. We're, we're kind of lost. Graham Hancock does. Go read that guy's books. He's fantastic. <laughs> oh, so uh, we're we're supposed to talk about. Um, uh, oh yeah. Uh, we're, oh, sorry. I have to. I have to get back to the 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 bullet points. The bullet points here. Um, check my name badge. Yeah. Okay. We're supposed to talk about Gemini's um, soon to be album. Yep. Biggest thing for me about this. Now I've, I've had the luxury of hearing some of these songs. My personal opinion. I think people are going to be absolutely dumbfounded. Uh, I think. I think Gemini Syndrome fans are going to be just awestruck. I think it's going to. It's going to hit them like a brick to the head. I think the the biggest consensus is that. This is Gemini's return, but heavy. What do you think about that? Uh, I mean... Do you think it's any heavier than Gemini has ever been? In, in some regards, yeah, I guess I do. Maybe because I'm in a more peaceful state of mind than I have been in the past. Okay. I felt like the record was a lot more... I don't want to say less heavy, but it didn't... I don't know, it doesn't feel as emotionally aggressive 
in a sense. Okay. But but that's like the content of what I'm saying. The music itself and the actual sonic quality is, I mean, it's for sure heavy. And it's sure, it's for sure intense what I'm talking about. Okay. But it's not necessarily like angry. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm not pissed off. It's uh, maybe because of, uh, you know, Meeks coming in, the guitar stuff. There's a little more kind of grit to it, but not so much um, disgruntled bullshit. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a heavy record. I, I get it. It'd be it'd be unfair to say it's not heavy. Um, I don't know, do it injustice by trying to describe it. <laughs> People are gonna be like, I don't know what you were talking about about your record. I don't. That's why I wrote it. I don't want to talk about it. Well, it's like, yeah. I don't, well. You know, if you're if you're confused, and then just buy it, and you'll figure it out by yourself. Yeah, I just want I want people to to make their own opinion of it. And uh, you know, one of my things with this record is I don't want to I don't really want to talk what the poems are about. I don't want to talk about the meaning behind the songs if I can avoid it, because I want people to take their own interpretation of it. In all honesty, you guys have taken a little bit of a time to to actually get a, another record out. And I mean, I know you guys still are you know buttoning up certain ends to it and stuff like that. It's this point but you had enough time to actually really kind of work through some stuff work through some some baggage some garbage to to get to this particular level of artistry that you guys are getting ready to put out yeah yeah soon do, do you feel like um you've got a heavy weight off your shoulders on this one uh, i think i will feel that once it's released so you're it's still hanging there in a sense yeah i still feel like i'm i'm very much in limbo right now and it's not really like a it's not a, an exceedingly long period of time but um you know it's always like hurry up and wait it's, it's always like that so now you're sounding now like it's, you're, a wait, it's a waiting period now you're sounding like you're a media person hurry up and wait you know the, the name of the game. <laughs> when the TM says, "Well, you got to be here at this time, this time, this time," and yep. oh, okay, they're not ready yet, uh, or we're not here yet, we're still stuck in traffic. Um, yep. Yep. Yeah, it's a hurry up and wait game. I'm kind of fascinated by this whole point because I kind of feel this apprehension, this uh, anxiety about putting podcasts out. When we do a podcast like this, and I get ready to put this up, or you know, we're getting ready to, you know, Aaron and I are to share this emotional vomit that we want to call this podcast sometimes, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, a tremendous amount of apprehension to it. Like, uh, do I dare put this out? It's kind of like releasing your child to the world. Sure. For you as a, as a songwriter, as a musician, as a front man for a band, uh, an image, really, uh, the face. Do you have that like super anxiety ridden kind of thing? Like, we're going to release the first single. Uh, we're going to put the whole album out. We're going to put the first video out. I mean, what is that like for you? Um, yeah, I definitely experienced some of that. Um, but it's, you know, like everything, it's a two sides of a coin, right? There's part of me that has trained myself to uh, not care. <laughs> okay. In a sense, because because in a way you have to do that to, or I have to do that to protect my, my emotional stability. Fair. Right. I'm happy with what I did. I know we did the best record we could possibly do, and I know it's a great record. I enjoy listening to it. I feel like I pushed myself as a musician. I think we all did as songwriters, as performers. So I'm super proud of it. And at some point, that has to be enough, I think. Then you want people to share in that with you, but if they don't, then that's their problem, right? Not everybody's going to like it. Right. And that's just, if you can't accept that about the world, you're going to have a hard time. You're going to have a bad time. Nobody wants to have a bad time, bro. Well, but, yeah. Uh, 
I mean, you, you but can't. It's, but you, it's the reality of it. You can't please everybody. No. Not and at all. So if you can at least try to please yourself in the beginning and say, I created this and I'm happy with it. Now I want to share it with people and hopefully they get something out of it too. Hopefully they enjoy it sonically. Maybe they listen to the poetry of it and they listen to the message that's there and they can take something away from it for themselves. Maybe all those things happen. But at the core of it, I have to at least just be happy with what I did for the sake that I did it. Well, knowing you guys collectively and individually as I do, um, I can say that people probably should get this. Um, I think that people <laughs> I think people are actually going to be uh, more than pleasantly surprised when they hear this. And I think that they'll I mean, look, dude, I mean, I've heard you guys, you know, just fucking around uh, in a, uh, a big aluminum box. It's rolling down the highway 80 miles an hour. So I think that I can say in some sort of confidence that I don't think you guys have anything to worry about as far as confident wise with this particular release that's coming. I mean, I, ho- I hope you're right. And I think you are right. <laughs> Um, I do. I, I really believe that it's good, and I think it's going to do. It's going to do well. But in the same, you know, in the same breath, man, everything is going to have like that. It is your creation, man. You yeah. can't not be. You can't not be emotionally attached to it, or or have some some piece of your pride, you know, wrapped up in it. Of course. Some part of some part of your ego. Of course. And if somebody doesn't like it, or or you know, what if this, they're all going to laugh at you? You know, <laughs> like that's always a thought in the back burner. But, uh, yeah, and if they do, then you just block them on Facebook. Yeah. No, delete <laughs> you from my MySpace friends. <laughs> okay, so last subject on the bullet point list, Fight Club. Yeah. We're going to talk about Fight Club. We, we You were uh, you were on social media. We were kind of making a, a references to uh, Brad Pitt and Fight Club. A fight Club does not exist. and Do not talk about Fight Club. Even no. though, even though uh, I have recently acquired a few new scars, and uh, you told me that um, you were going to teach me knife fighting, and then I could tell everybody that the reason I have those scars is because I got in a knife fight. You realize by telling everybody that that was our plan, that our plan is now totally fucked. Oh, shit. Shit. <laughs> but it was a good plan while it lasted. We'll have to get Nick to teach us the stick fighting now. I been... will still teach you I will still teach you how to knife fight if you like. But um I would love to. But you got your scars pre knife fighting training. I did. Yeah, unfortunately. We can always edit this part out. We're not live. We so could. Right? We could. Yeah, I could totally edit this out. Yeah. I think <laughs> it's, it's funnier if we I think it's fun... music. I think it's funnier if we leave it in though. <laughs> Intermission like jazz music. <laughs> That's it, man. I think a lot of people want to know about the Aaron Nordstrom uh, martial arts guy. Uh, do they? <laughs> I I think they do. I mean, do you they? you I make am. you make enough references to it. I mean, why do. why why does why does Aaron do martial arts? What what's what's the purpose for you to do it? Um, I appreciate the art and the science of it very much like I do music. Okay. No, because I mean, really, the two things that I probably have the most passion about are kung fu and, and music, and I find them to be uh, very intertwined as as fields of study, I guess. But more and more importantly, I guess the way they kind of infiltrate your life because they're sciences, but they're they're tied into philosophy too because it's art, right? So when you learn like when you learn music, you have to learn the mechanics of the 12 tones of the system of music that we that we that we use that we hear and then you learn the mathematics of how those things are related and that turns into like keys and modes and then you learn how 
the mechanics of time work, and that's rhythm. And then you combine all those things and you have music. You have melody, harmony, and, and rhythm. And then you have, you know, the physical execution of learning your particular instrument, you know, whether it be piano or guitar or voice or whatever. And you have a whole slew of, of physiological things that you have to, to train your body to do, whether it be breathing exercises or, you know, playing your scales properly, proper finger exercises, uh, building up the muscle capacity to do these things on a on a minute level. So there's you know there's, there's a science to it. There's an art and a an order of operations, so to say, right? The same that you would have in any other science in mathematics or in chemistry or whatever. So the same thing applies in martial arts. Like you have obviously you have your four limbs, you have your hands and your feet, your arms and your legs, and you can move those in you know a certain amount of variable directions. And by learning those things, you can learn how different ways to use your arm to punch or throw a different type of, of attack or whatever. And then over time, you know, you refine those movements just the same way you refine playing a scale on guitar. Right. It becomes more effortless, right? And then that gets put into, instead of becoming a song, if the context is a live fight or, or you know, I call it playing in, in Kung Fu because we're not really fighting. But, you know, you put it into combat and all of that long, arduous time that's spent doing all of these, like, you know, monotonous, repetitive exercises and, and these things, you know, doing your forms over and over again or playing your scales over and over again. Eventually, you get to a place where you have freedom of expression and you can, you know, you can improvise songs. And then Kung Fu to me becomes like dancing at the end of it. You know, it's really more of just the physical exercise and, and moving my joints and, and getting my physical vehicle, you know, the proper oil changes that it needs. So to say. <laughs> because that's really what it is. It's just getting, you know, it's the older I get, the more I find myself doing like the lighter side of Tai Chi or Qigong. Um, just to get myself moving, you know, it doesn't really have to have the, the fighting effects of it, you know, or the combat application. So I see old people still doing that stuff and, you know, still keeping their joints and their muscles working. Um, but beyond that, just the, the things that it does to you mentally, man, when you start thinking, you know, you start reading the ancient Chinese philosophy and the old Taoist philosophy and Buddhist stuff, and, you know, it has a way of creeping into your worldview and uh, just kind of changing the way you see your reality. It is kind of interesting how you relate it to music because while you're talking about somebody who's involved with martial arts or that aspect of it and about the history behind it, all I'm thinking of is a southern blues artist and inspiring, you know, a rock and roll guitarist. There's so much comparison, so many similarities between the two things. And I think that's great that you're actually using that aspect not only for yourself and for your emotions and your physicality, but you're using it on your artistic side for music and singing and your performance on the stage. If you start thinking about it, you start seeing a lot of rock guys that get up on stage that are very much so into martial arts. I don't know if it's some of them are thinking, oh, it's cool because, you know, I was a long-haired kid in high school in the 80s and I was going to get my ass kicked, so I need to learn martial arts. Or, uh, you know, you, <laughs> you, you actually get the idea behind it that there's a lot more spiritual control about your life and about being fine-tuned than people maybe kind of take it for granted. I don't know. For sure. And, you know, maybe it's a combination of both of those things, right? It could and be. I know I started out, I started out as, a, as a wimpy kid and 
uh, you know, I started with uh, the sports that I couldn't play. Right, I couldn't play basketball because I could. I, didn't, I, I sucked. I was legally blind. I'm not good at sports, <laughs> so I didn't make the team. <laughs> and uh, you know, all the sports you had to try out for, I couldn't. I couldn't do. So I wrestled because you didn't have to try out. So I started with my, that was my first combat sport. And then a couple of years later, I got into hapkido. And but for real, it was you know there was nothing spiritual about it. It was just like oh, I'm mad and I'm 86 pounds. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what am I going to do to the world? So I wrestled. Yeah, eventually it led into more of the spiritual practice of it. And that could be a whole podcast thing. It could be a yes. whole week-long conversation for real about how, you know, music and, and martial arts are tied together. Uh, even in the, at their source, when you look at traditional Chinese culture, there's a thing called the Jingwu, which is a, a martial arts federation of traditional Chinese martial artists. And they have what's called the five excellencies. In order to be a member of the Jingwu, you have to be considered a, a master of martial arts. Right. A master of calligraphy, mathematics, you have to master the abacus, uh, Chinese medicine, and one stringed instrument. So you have to know music too. And this, the, the reason you have to learn a stringed instrument is to develop the sensitivity in your fingertips to be able to read the pulses when you do Chinese medicine. If you don't have the sensitivity, you can't feel the pulses in the wrist. They feel pulses differently than we do in Eastern, in Western medicine. We're not just looking for the, the heartbeat. There's other pulses that go through from the liver and the kidneys. Right. And that's how they diagnose you. So if you don't have the sensitivity there, you can't do Chinese medicine. So all of that stuff, they all they all trickle into each other, right, somewhere or another. You've completely, like, shaken up the rock world and, of course, like, American medical and insurance industry right there. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of insurance agents that are going, damn it. Oh, we, man. We don't yeah. cover that. We don't cover that. <laughs> They don't. They should. They should, though. Aaron, we always have the best conversations. Yeah, man. That's uh, always a good time. So uh, I will talk to you very soon, and I will see you uh, probably at NAM. Awesome. Very good, sir. And uh, for everybody that's out there, uh, thank you for listening to the Liquid Conversations and the musings of Aaron Nordstrom and Sean Six. That's us. The Liquid Conversations podcast is brought to you by Dirtbag Clothing. Wear it till it stinks.